0: You are listening to the Hill City Church podcast. Our mission is to become and make disciples who walk with God, connect with people, and impact the world. Today we are continuing our teaching series through the Sermon on the Mount. We're talking about everyone's favorite spiritual discipline, fasting. And uh, No, no, for many of us, and in many Christian circles, fasting is actually somewhat of a forgotten spiritual discipline. Many Christians may have little to no experience, or the experience that you've had with fasting was possibly negative. It was surrounded by legalism, or you were really grumpy, and you just didn't have a great experience. And uh, so, uh, yet Jesus, when he talks about fasting in the Sermon on the Mount... Once again, he's going to talk about it as an expectation. Like this is one of just the things that you do. It's one of the three core practices in Matthew chapter 6 that Jesus addresses. I listened to a sermon uh, from Pastor John Tyson in Church of the City of New York. And uh, this is what he says. He says, Jesus assumes that one of the three core practices of his disciples was giving, which we get prayer, which we love, and fasting, which we totally neglect. And I think that really accurately describes the last three weeks of sermons, right? Where two weeks ago was a sermon on giving, secret giving, and most of us are like, okay, yeah, you know, it's like, we get it, you know, we, we give to support the work of ministry, we give to God's kingdom, and uh, our attitude towards giving is a little bit of that, like, oh, it's just kind of like a necessary evil in a way. Uh, And yet, it's actually a a significant act of worship, right? And then prayer is like the one, you know, that's the one in Matthew chapter 6. It's like, oh good, a little bit of refreshment. We love the prayer. We love learning about prayer, diving deeper into prayer. And then fasting, it's almost like a deer in the headlights. (laughs) Like, what? What We're supposed to fast? What is fasting? So today, I want to be really clear. My goal, just cards on the table, my goal today is to convince you that you're missing out on something if you're not fasting. That's my goal. Fasting is not a commandment. It's not like you're you're better than another Christian if you do fast and they don't fast, especially for some people there's medical reasons why they're not able to fast, that sort of thing. Uh, In the Old Covenant, actually, there's only one day where there was a required fast, and that's the Day of Atonement. And we know that in the New Covenant, Jesus fully satisfied all of the requirements of the day of atonement, So there, there's no commandment in the New Testament. Jesus is not going to command us to fast. But let me put it to you like this. Have you ever tried to a, a perform a task, but you didn't have the right tool? Have you ever had that experience? And the longer that you did the task, the more frustrating that you got. And, and you thought, man, if only I had this tool. I'll tell you a quick story uh, to illustrate this point, I a uh, few few weeks ago replaced four posts in my fence in my backyard. The fence uh, has never been uh, redone, and so it was kind of in shambles. Four posts were like falling over, and so I had to dig up, you know, two feet under the ground these concrete footers that the posts were connected to. And I have two different shovels at my house. I have a spade which has a pointy end, and then I have a flathead shovel which is not a pointy end; it's flat. And uh, so uh, I got to work on a Saturday afternoon, and it was hot, and it was tiring, and I got the first two holes dug, and then my buddy Ryan showed up to help me. And I did what every good friend did. I handed him the shovel, and I said, your turn. <laughs> and so he got to work on post hole number three, and while he was working on number three, I thought, well, maybe I'll grab the flathead shovel and try to, to dig out that, third, that fourth, you know, uh, piece of concrete out of the ground, and I worked for, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes, and I got only a few inches deep, right, and he's over there getting big old shovelfuls with the spade, because the spade is designed to dig down deep, and a flathead shovel is designed to like move gravel and stuff like that, and so I was so just like, you know, just so tired and irritated, I actually thought of my, my daughter has a toy shovel, That has a, it's a lime green, it has a pointy end, and I'm like, it's actually, the head is made out of metal, that'll probably do better than this whole thing. So I threw my flathead shovel away, and I grabbed my daughter's shovel, and I took one stab into the ground, and busted the head off my daughter's shovel, (laughs) and she was watching the whole thing, and was devastated, and it was like, I had to apologize, and it was this horrible, horrible mess. Anyways, it's... If you're trying to perform a task, but you don't have the right tool, you're only gonna get more and more frustrated because you're not gonna see the results. And fasting, like all of the other spiritual disciplines, is a spiritual practice. It's like a tool designed for a specific purpose. And I would argue that if you're missing some of these spiritual disciplines. Of course, there's like the reading the Bible and prayer. Those are like the two core ones. But even some of these other spiritual practices, spiritual disciplines that maybe you don't have as much experience with, you're actually missing a tool from the tool belt. And so today, I wanna make a case that if you're missing out on fasting, then you're actually missing out on something that God wants to do in your life. So with that, let's jump into Matthew chapter six. Middle of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, verse 16. Jesus says these words, And when you fast, notice this language, if, when, not if, when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received the reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. Modern-day translation, take shower. That your fasting may not be seen by others, but your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Before we get into fasting, really Jesus is not talking so much about fasting as, is, as he is about righteousness, right? This is the third example, three weeks straight, we've looked at this same idea, but I want to... Camp out on it for just a moment so that we don't miss it. Jesus is saying the same point for the third time. And here's the point that Jesus is saying. God rewards humble, not hypocritical righteousness. He's used the same language. If you're doing something, practicing righteousness, in order to be seen, you've received a reward in full because you're getting the praise from men that you were seeking. But if you do those acts of righteousness in secret, your Father in heaven will reward the things that you've done in secret. But essentially, we can actually get the wrong idea here. The problem isn't necessarily the fact that you did something good and someone else saw you. So for instance, if you go to mow your neighbor's lawn to serve them, you don't have to wear a ski mask <laughs> when you do that. In fact, that might, you might get the cops called on you. Or, you, know, if you it, it, the problem isn't necessarily the, the sheer fact that you were seen. The problem is that you enjoyed being seen. Do you catch that? The problem is the whole reason you did it is in order to be seen. So the problem isn't this, the fact that someone saw you, they witnessed you doing something righteous. The fact is you're doing it with the motive of, I hope that I get noticed. I hope that I get the glory. And uh, so, th- so I would, instead of like secret versus seen, I think it's important to talk about humble versus hypocritical humble heart versus a hypocritical heart. Paul in Ephesians 6.6 6 is addressing slaves and masters. We might take this as employees and employers, but he talks about the way that people should serve in that situation. He says this, he says that people should serve not by way of eye service or as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. We all know what doing something for eye service means. It means that you only work when your boss is staring over your shoulder, right? And maybe you've had a job like that where you know it was kind of like you you weren't your heart wasn't really in it, and so the boss walks in and you're like just wiping down stuff that doesn't need to be wiped down, and as soon as they leave, you're you're on your phone or you're you're, you're slacking off, right? So that's the idea of hypocritical service. And we can kind of serve God like that if we're not careful. We can only serve God when someone else is looking, when someone else notices. And the point that Jesus is making is, do you follow, do you follow him not just in public but also in private? And that's how you can tell where, when, when someone has a genuine righteousness is they're actually following Jesus when nobody knows not just in the public ways, not just in the ways that get applause, they're following him in private as well, or as Jesus says, in secret. They're, they have their own relationship with Jesus, and they follow him, and they do those things. They're going to give money whether they get a large check or you know, a large plaque or not. They're going to they're, they're gonna fast whether someone knows that they're fasting. There seems to be some kind of practice where, you know, the Pharisees would kind of like, you know, disfigure their faces so that everyone knew like, oh, that guy's fasting. Don't give him a Snickers bar today, no matter how grumpy he gets. And, uh, you know, it's, it's the, that kind of righteousness that Jesus is saying is, is really hypocritical. It's, it's not really serving the purpose. But we have to be careful not to look at Matthew chapter 6 and forget the point from Matthew chapter 5 in the same exact Sermon on the Mount, because many, many Christians might even use Matthew 6 as an excuse to follow Jesus secretly, which I think is an oxymoron. I think it's a paradox. I don't think you can be a secret disciple. Jesus teaches us if we deny him before men that he will deny us, and We have to remember in the same exact sermon, Jesus has already made the point in Matthew 5, 16. In the same way, let your light shine. That that word light is a metaphor for righteousness. We might read it, let your righteousness shine before others so that they may what? So that they can see you. They may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. So the problem is not the fact that other people see you doing good works or doing good things or practicing righteousness. In fact, it's expected by Jesus himself. This is not an excuse to follow him in secret. And so this is a tension, though, to manage. How do you know whether you did that good work in order to be seen or someone just happened to see you and you actually had a genuine heart? And I would say when in doubt, here's one quick heart check that you can use, a simple question that you can use to measure your motives. The question is this. Who gets the glory? Who gets the glory? Okay, so you did this act of righteousness, Who gets the glory for it? Are you doing it and and you're being seen, or are people seeing Jesus? Are they seeing the gospel? Are they seeing God more because you did it? And if you look at something like like with giving and like with fasting, these are ones that there's no really great reason to be sharing those things with other people, right? And if you're the only one who's receiving the glory, then you better keep it secret, right? Right? Then then you better practice that without making a big deal. Now this isn't necessarily Jesus forbidding, you know, that someone found out that you're fasting. Anytime I fast, my wife knows that I'm fasting, okay, so that she doesn't like offer me food and I'm like really, you know, talking in code. Like, no, I don't want any of that. Like, you know, it's okay to tell someone that you're fasting, or if someone invites you out to a meal, which which happens on a day that I'm fasting, someone might invite me to lunch. I'll just tell them I'm fasting so that they don't think that I like, actually don't like them and I don't want to have lunch with them or something like that. But the reality is you don't need to be flashy. You don't need to you know, take the selfie, hashtag fasting today, hashtag hungry, hashtag spiritual. You don't, need, you don't need to do that. You don't need to draw attention, especially if you are the one who is getting the glory. Now, if there's a missional reason, if there's an evangelistic reason, to practice, uh, do a good deed, to practice righteousness, because it's going to actually make God be seen on a greater, then those are the things you should do in public, right? Does that, does that help clarify that? There's a quick heart check to check your motives. Now, with all that in mind, that, that should be a little bit of review, because it's been the same principle for prayer, the same principle for generosity. Now, for the rest of day, I want to focus on, okay, so fasting. I think the problem isn't that we fast so much and we're drawing attention. I would say the problem for most, uh, most people in a church like ours is that we almost never do it, and Jesus expects it. And so I just want to talk about what is fasting and give you four reasons to convince you that you're missing out if you're never fasting. So first, what is fasting? Biblical fasting is this. There's a simple definition for biblical fasting. It's abstaining from food to depend on God. It's abstaining from food to depend on on God, and I would argue that more Christians have probably fasted for fitness than they've fasted for their faith. Do you agree? That it's kind of like you know I'm doing intermittent fasting and I'm doing CrossFit and you know I'm I'm trying to get the macros or whatever the new trend is, right? But have you fasted in, for the purpose? It's not just that you skipped lunch. Like oftentimes I forget to pack a lunch and I skip lunch. I'm not necessarily accidentally fasting on those days. If fasting is this intentional, I'm intentionally skipping food for the purpose of dependence on God. And uh, this is different, by the way. Sometimes we use the language, I'm fasting from social media or I'm fasting from online shopping. Now, there's a difference between fasting and abstaining from something. It's, and for you, you might need to abstain from social media or abstain from... Uh, online shopping or or fill in the blank. If there's something that seems to have a hold on your heart, it's a good thing to put a boundary or put a limit. But biblical fasting doesn't have to do with online shopping. It's different than that. It's specifically this idea of there's there's a connection between your stomach and what the Bible calls your flesh, the desires of... Your, your body and sometimes even your sinful desires. There's three different kinds of fast that you see throughout scripture. First is a normal fast, this is only water. Uh, this is what, the way Jesus fasted for 40 days in Matthew chapter four. Uh, there's a partial fast, which is a restricted diet. Uh, this is different, by the way, than the Daniel diet. If you've heard of the Daniel diet from the book of Daniel, this is different. In Daniel chapter 10, Daniel sees a, sp- uh, a particularly disturbing vision and uh, he doesn't know what to do with it, so he, he fasts, but his fast is he doesn't have dessert, he doesn't have meat, and he doesn't have wine. So it's like he restricts his diet. So he still eats some food, but it's a very simple, basic diet. And then there's an absolute fast, which should not be done for prolonged periods of time, but an absolute fast is no food or drink whatsoever. One of the few times we see this happen is in Acts chapter 9 when Saul sees Jesus on the road to Damascus, and he's blinded. Well, one of the little-known you know, details of that story is while he's blinded for three days, he neither eats nor drinks anything as a way of like deep repentance and seeking God. So those are the three different kinds of fasting. So with that in mind, why, okay, so if that's what fasting is, skipping a meal, skipping, a, skipping food for a certain amount of time, why should you do it? I've got four reasons for you, Okay. Number one, if you're taking notes, four reasons for you to consider fasting. Here's what fasting does. It teaches us to say no to our desires. Everyone say no. No. You got to say it like you mean it. Everyone say no. No. Okay. Like you're talking to a dog or something, you know, it's like no. The reality is our culture teaches you never to say no to your desires. Our culture that we live in Teaches you that you're being repressive if you're saying no to your desires. And I can't think of worse advice in the world than to always do what you want to do, than to always do, because we want to do some pretty messed up things sometimes, pretty destructive to others or self destructive things. And what fasting does is this isn't to say that food is an evil desire, okay? Is food an evil desire? Clearly not. It's a God-given desire, especially like delicious food is intended to be enjoyed by God. It's a gift. So what you're doing in fasting is you're saying no to a normal, healthy, physical desire. And, and, and that discipline will translate in saying no to unhealthy, destructive, sinful desires. Does that make sense? Because if you can say no to lunch, then odds are you can say no at least you have a little bit extra power or willpower to say no to pornography or to some of these other appetites or desires of the flesh. We've talked about before, the three main enemies of the soul is the world, the flesh, and the devil. And fasting is one of those spiritual practices that specifically targets the flesh. Those still unsanctified habits of sin I think about the way that Paul describes enemies of Christ. This is strong language in Philippians 3.19. Look at what he says. He says, their end is their destruction. Their God is their what? Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. And I would say like that idea, their God is their belly, is not that far off from modern-day America. If it feels good, do it right? And it's this idea of sensuality, the idolatry of sensuality. Sensuality is living for your senses, living for what feels good. And so often, we don't, we don't want to think about our God as our belly, but for many of us, it is. And we haven't ever learned the discipline of saying no to something that we physically want to do, and yet it's an, it's an incredibly important spiritual discipline. This is maybe one of the most significant things that fasting has to offer to you. In fact, when I'm mentoring or discipling someone and they're struggling with, specifically sexual sin is, is a big area that fasting comes into play, is I always ask the question, have you ever tried fasting? And they look at me like, well, no, why would I try that? It's like, well, you've tried everything else and nothing else seems to be helping. So why don't you skip lunch next week Spend that time in prayer. Spend that time in the word. And we'll come back together next week and we'll talk. John Mark Comer in his book, Live No Lies, says it like this. Have I referenced Live No Lies before? (laughs) Many times. It is a good book. I highly recommend it. And I've been encouraged to see people putting it on their to-read list. Very, very, uh, my favorite book of last year. He says this, fasting trains our bodies to not get what they want, at least not all the time. This is yet another reason why in a culture so run by feelings and desire, fasting is a bizarre idea even to Christians. We assume that we must get what we want to be happy, and by want, we often mean what our flesh wants, and this simply isn't true. Simply isn't true. This instant gratification, fast food, microwave world that we live in is screaming at us, to give in to every desire, every animalistic, primal, even sinful desire that you might have. And I'm just here to tell you that not only does that not lead to happiness, oftentimes that leads to hollowness. And it it leads to destruction. And it's this never-ending law of diminishing returns. You need more input, and it leads you down these really destructive dark paths. And so try fasting. Uh, It would do us well to remember the very first sin of mankind in genesis chapter 3 remember that the very first sin there was many many components involved but at a mo- the most basic level did you realize the very first original sin was the ability not to eat do you realize that the very first sin was adam and eve having this forbidden fruit and they couldn't say no to their bellies they couldn't say no to food Genesis 3, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So at most basically, now there's other things going on. There's the deception of the enemy. There's pride, wanting to, to climb that ladder and be equal with God. There's other elements at play, but at a basic level, It was an appeal to the flesh the fruit looked good it seemed good it it, there was maybe even like salivating going on in their mouths i bet that's delicious right how many of our sins are linked to the inability to control our bodies many of them many of the ways that we sin, even sins like anger. You realize even sins like saying the wrong thing, these, these gut impulses, gratifying that instant desires. And yet what, what's phenomenal, some of you might be wondering, how are you going to preach the gospel in a sermon about fasting? Well, get, buckle up, okay? Jesus did what Adam and Eve could not do. That's one of the things that's being replayed Genesis 3, there's this parallel in Matthew 4 where Jesus fasts for 40 days and 40 nights, and the greatest understatement of the entire Bible says, and he was hungry. I fast for four hours and I'm hungry. 40 days and 40 nights, he's hungry, and the devil comes to him, same as the devil came to Adam and Eve, to tempt him. And their very first temptation was to turn stones into bread, And this is how Jesus responded. He didn't say, oh, that would be good for food. It's a desire to the eyes. Maybe I'll eat it. Look at how Jesus responds. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And Jesus overcomes that temptation. He overcomes that temptation. He overcomes the next two temptations as well, which you can link those to to the pride of life and the lust of the eyes, right? Right. And he overcomes not just those temptations in Matthew chapter four, but every single temptation that he ever faced. Now, Jesus is the son of God, but he's the son of God in flesh and blood with an actual body who faced actual temptations, who lived, by the way, in and amidst the fallen world that we live in with the same exact kind of peer pressure, and I would say even a heightened amount of spiritual pressure than you and I face. And he overcame every single temptation. And this is significant because we know that the wages of sin is death and Jesus never, ever once sinned so he should never, ever have to die. So why is Jesus hanging there on the cross, being tortured, facing the wrath of God? Was it for his own sins? Of course not. It was for the sins of you and me. Paul, in Romans 5, he talks about Jesus as this parallel. That you have the first Adam, but then you have Jesus described as the second Adam. In Romans 5, 19, for as by the one man's disobedience, referring to Adam, the many were made sinners, that's you and me, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. The reality is that there's no amount of righteous deeds that you could do to earn your way into heaven, to earn, your, to earn your, your spot around that banquet table at the wedding feast of the lamb, to earn your name in the lamb's book of life, to earn your place in the throne room of God to worship him forever and ever. There's no amount of righteous deeds. There's no amount of fasting. There's no amount of prayer. There's no amount of giving. You can't write a check big enough Right There's no amount of times reading the Bible or church attendance to make. And the righteousness that we need is we need Christ's righteousness. We need to be clothed and covered. And it's through faith in Jesus Christ, accepting that his death on the cross was for you. It was on your behalf. And you stop trying to climb that ladder or earn your way back to God. But you surrender your life fully to Jesus. And you ask God to cleanse you for your unrighteousness. To clothe you in Christ's righteousness, and it's through full faith and trust in Christ Jesus as Lord that you can be made righteous, and you can be forgiven, and by the power of the resurrection, Jesus can raise you up to live a new life in Him. That's the gospel, okay? That's the gospel, and uh, and I'm just here to tell you, if you've never responded to the gospel, you can be forgiven, you can be made clean. Stop trying to earn your way to God. Surrender your life to Christ Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Last Sunday, we got to uh, witness a couple people in the Boise River get baptized. There's some photos. There's, you know, we can celebrate this. Yes, the Boise River is still cold, even though it's 100 degrees. And then Sean was here. uh, He gave his life to Christ last Saturday. Never given your life to Christ through baptism. It's the way Jesus instructed us to declare our faith in him. The very first sermon in Acts chapter two of the early church on the day of Pentecost, the people said, we understand what Jesus did. Now, what do we do to respond? That's what baptism is. It's the appropriate response to the gospel. What does Peter say? Repent and be baptized. Repent and be baptized. It doesn't earn your way to God, but it's the the appropriate response of salvation, And I would just encourage you, if you've never been baptized, uh, Labor Day weekend, we're all going down to the river at the park. And you can sign up. You can go to hillcityboise.org slash baptism. We have a few people already signed up saying, hey, Labor Day weekend, I want to get baptized. And if that's you, pray about it. Pray about it. And declare your faith in Jesus through baptism. All right. That's the first reason. I want to give you three more reasons why we should fast. The second reason is this. Fasting is a way of mourning with our bodies. One of the things that Americans don't generally do well is grief and loss. Uh, When somebody is sad, we say, you want to go out after work and grab a beer. We give them a pint of Ben and Jerry's. Now, I don't want to heap guilt or shame on you if, if eating or any of that stuff is your coping mechanism. And yet... Biblically speaking, this is one of the most frequently uh, used ways that we see fasting in scripture, is when something bad happens, people actually grieve, not just through their words or their tears, but through fasting, through fasting. It's a way of mourning loss. Second Samuel, you see uh, uh, Saul and Jonathan die. This is what David and his men do. Then David took a hold of his clothes and he tore them and so did all the men who were with them. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, and for the people of the Lord and the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. So there's this battle. Saul dies. Jonathan dies. A bunch of soldiers die. And the very first reaction of David and the other soldiers who didn't die is to fast. It was kind of like that very first reaction. And when we grieve loss, fasting can be a powerful way. Uh, You not only see fasting as a way of mourning suffering, mourning loss, but also mourning our own sins. It's a way of deep and genuine repentance. You see this in Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah just receives word uh, that the walls of Jerusalem are still torn down. Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king in Persia. And this is what he does. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And what's interesting, if you read the rest of Nehemiah chapter 1, Nehemiah is not only weeping and mourning because of the situation of vulnerability that Jerusalem is in. He actually goes on, and his prayers, you can read them. He's praying prayers of repentance for the sins of the people, the corporate, the communal sins of the people confessing their sins on their behalf with God. And he even prays for, about his own sins. And so he's, he's mourning, but he's mourning more than just the loss. He's mourning sin. And I would say to you, Man, if there's a moment of your life where the Holy Spirit convicts you, maybe through a person or maybe through scripture or maybe through just your own conscience, the Holy Spirit, like a ton of bricks, convicts you of an ongoing, decades-long, you know, just this, 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 this sin that you didn't really think about, you've grown so callous to, and he's calling you to repentance, that's a moment worth fasting about to show se- severity and seriousness and humility in your repentance. See, fasting and celebration are both spiritual disciplines, but you might say that they're opposites. Fasting's not fun. It's like one of the least fun spiritual disciplines. Celebration is like the embodiment of fun. Celebration is like, have a banquet, grab some good drinks, get your favorite friends around, sing loud music, right? Fasting is is not so much, and yet they're both appropriate at certain moments in time and when there's moments of deep loss or deep moments of recognition of sin that's not a moment to be quick to celebrate it's a moment to fast this is how jesus says it in matthew chapter 9 14 through 15 he says this then the disciples of john came to him saying why do we and the pharisees fast the pharisees usually fasted twice a week by the way but your disciples do not fast and jesus said to them Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away. He's talking about himself from them. And then they what? They will fast. Notice the language. When you fast, here in Matthew 9, they will fast. So there's an expectation that followers of Jesus do participate in the spiritual discipline. But why does Jesus say his disciples aren't doing it at that current moment? It's because it's this inauguration of the kingdom of heaven. It's a joyous time, right? And I would say to you, when you're fasting, if you're going to like a birthday party or you're going to a wedding, don't fast. It's just gonna bum everyone out, okay? Just schedule it at a different time. And it is significant, especially if you have a regular, sometimes even a weekly time of fasting. It's worth even adjusting when you're fasting so that you can still participate in a celebration that you're going to. Look at Tertullian. He says this, early church father. He says, when we consider fasting or kneeling in worship, both kind of these these somber acts of spirituality, on the Lord's day to be what? Unlawful. We rejoice in the same privilege also from Easter to Pentecost. So Tertullian, early church father, it, and he was well aware that, okay, when are you going to fast? You're going to fast leading up to Easter, right? It's this modern-day equivalent of Lent, right? You're going to fast in preparation, thinking, focusing on the, the death, on the cross. You're going to fast then. But after Easter, don't fast on Easter. From Easter to Pentecost, that's party time, okay? That's celebration time. And in the same way, you can fast, but, but you better not be fasting, you know, during times of celebration, right? Does that make sense? So fasting is this kind of antithesis of, of celebration, it's this, this mourning with your body. All right, this is the second reason. Third reason, fasting turns up the volume in prayer. Now, this is a tricky one to explain, an easy one to misunderstand. Uh, so forgive me if I don't do the, per, the perfect way of uh, communicating this. But let me just explain it like this. There's something about our posture towards God and how we approach him in prayer that does matter that does contribute to the history of Israel. The first one is the king of Israel, the northern kingdom, King Ahab. He went down in history as literally one of the worst kings ever, okay? There's Bible verses that was like, yep, Ahab was the worst. And Ahab, he married Jezebel, and this, this situation happens right after there's this convoluted plot. to. He wants a new garden, and so he's gonna take this guy's vineyard. He wants a vegetable garden, right? And so he's like, I really want this This plot of land, and his wife's like, I'll get it for you, and they have this guy killed so that he can take his land. Very messed up. A prophet shows up to Ahab and says, you're gonna be killed. You're gonna be judged. You're gonna die because of what you've done. Very serious. But look at what happens. This is so interesting. A corrupt evil king. 1 Kings 21, 27 through 29. When Ahab heard those words from the prophet, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth on his flesh, and fasted, laying in sackcloth, and went about dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishpite, saying, have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's days I will bring the disaster upon his house. Unless God himself said this, I'd be really tempted to interpret this a a different way. But essentially what God is saying is God can tell the sincerity of an evil king's heart because he tore his clothes and he fasted in his prayer. And God actually, in a way, forgave Ahab and delayed the judgment and the punishment to the next generation. That's kind of mind boggling to think about. So we have that example that his prayer for you know, repentance and forgiveness was, was heard because of how he humbled himself, specifically humbling himself through fasting. But I wanna give you another king who went down in history as one of the greatest kings, King David, a man after God's own heart. And he had a, a dark season where he sinned with Bathsheba and he had Bathsheba's husband murdered and they, they, she actually bore a child out of that sinful time and God pronounced through the prophet Nathan that that child would die as a punishment. But look at what happens in Second Samuel chapter twelve, verses fifteen through eighteen. And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife Bathsheba bore to David, and he became sick. And David therefore sought God on behalf of the child. So there's this is intercessory prayer. Notice how he prays. And David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor, nor did he eat food with them. And on the seventh day, the child died. And that's a, a, you know, a really sad story, right? The child still dies. But can you, do you see that contrast? Really evil king fasts, humbles himself, goes about dejectedly, God hears his prayer. David, one of the greatest kings in the history, he fasts, he prays, and the child still dies. Here's the point. Fasting may turn up the volume on your prayer, but at the same point from last week, we don't manipulate God in prayer. Just because you fasted doesn't mean that you're twisting God's arm. It's not like you're, you're finding some magic formula. God's will still will be done in a situation, and no, no amount of meals that you skip will kind of force God's hand. God doesn't have to obey you when you do all the right spiritual practices. So there's an an element where fasting shows seriousness and humility, and I would say during specific times where you are just crying out to God, whether it's a petition for your own needs or maybe even deep times of intercessory prayer. I think one of the benefits of fasting during Lent leading up to Easter is praying for power and movement for, for people to respond to the gospel on Easter it's one of the greatest things that we can do, is is leading up to that season, is praying for revival, is praying for renewal. And yet, at the same time, we just have to acknowledge God's will be done. That fasting is not a way to manipulate God. Fasting also, though, turns up, if you think about prayer, not just in the sense of the things that we say to God, but also the things that we hear from God in prayer. Communication is a two-way street. That fasting can actually also be a way of turning up the volume in listening to the Holy Spirit. So I would say if you are in a time of deep discernment, not just of deep need where you're asking God for these big requests, but actually discerning his will for your life, then fasting can be a great tool for turning up the volume in prayer in that way. Look at Acts chapter 13. This is Paul and Barnabas at the church in Antioch before they are commissioned and sent out on a missionary journey. It says this, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting... The Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. This is one of those details it's easy to skip over. It might be easy to to think about this as just this idea of, yeah, they all knew that, that Paul and Barnabas were called to ministry, so they decided to commission them. Why did they decide to commission them for this missionary journey? Because as they were fasting, they literally heard the Holy Spirit say, do it. And it, it, there was a way in which, they, as they were seeking God's will, the Holy Spirit made it clear. Now, once again, this isn't a formula. This isn't like you fast one meal and then the heavens open and you hear an audible word from God. At the same time, I would encourage you, as you the, the deeper that you're discerning wisdom and direction for your life, those are moments to begin fasting. All right, the fourth reason is the final reason, the fourth and final reason, scripturally speaking, why I think we should fast is fasting grows compassion for the poor. Fasting grows compassion for the poor, which if you read the gospels is very near and dear to Jesus Christ's heart. It's compassion for the poor and the hurting and the impressed. And uh, do you, you know that there's this idea that food connects you with people? Like this is this, everyone knows this, that one of the deepest acts of, fellowship and relationship is to seat, sit across the table from someone, to share a meal. Almost every culture you know, understands this. It's one of the very first things. If you want to pick a spouse, do you want to go on a date? Do you want to go out? Right? Even getting to know people. Like it, there's a beautiful thing of evangelism and reaching your neighborhood when you have backyard barbecues, that there's, there's a significant theology of food helps connect people. But by the same logic, if people are sitting around a table and you're not, fasting isolates you from people. And I've had that experience before where, you know, for, for whatever reason, you know, everyone was like eating a really good meal and you can smell it and you're like, I should just sit in the other room, you know? It's too hard to even like sit there. And uh, if food connects you, then hunger separates you. But what we don't always think about is there are, there are millions of people in the world who still, still deal with poverty on an everyday basis. They don't have clean water, they don't have enough food. They're starving, they're hurting. And what fasting does is you skip one or two meals. You, you, go, you fast for 24 hours or whatever it looks like. What you start to do is you feel it a little bit. And it kind of wakes up your heart to the fact that there are people who, who are in need. And I would say you're, you're a lot more likely to participate in praying for people who are in need and also actually doing something to step in and help them. In Isaiah 58, you see this, this word spoken to the people of Israel. And they're fasting, they're fasting, but they're also neglecting to care for the poor and the oppressed. And, and this is what Isaiah 58, 6 through 8 says: it says, Is not this the fast that I choose? to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, Uh, to let the oppressed go free, to break every yoke. That's a, a bond of slavery. Is it not to share the bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then your light shall break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you and the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. And so this is one of those things. It's very similar to Matthew 25, how Jesus can tell the difference between the sheep and the goats is that the sheep are the ones who actually feed the hungry. They give drink to the thirsty. They clothe the naked. They visit those who are in prison. And the reality is, if you don't have a heart of compassion for people who are in those situations, try fasting. Try fasting. And maybe the thing that you're praying for while you're fasting, because it's always a good idea, the the time that you would be eating that meal, spend that time doing some kind of thing, hungering for God, reading scripture in prayer, you can actually spend that time in prayer for God's provision for people in the world. Uh, You could actually take the money You could calculate it if you wanted to. Like, where would I go out to eat today? I'd go to Chick-fil-A. I'd probably spend $7.57 on meal or whatever. You can calculate that and take the money that you would have spent feeding yourself, and you can give that money to feeding someone else. Better yet, you go to the restaurant, you buy the very meal that you would want, and you actually hand it to someone, right? That's a way that, that fasting is actually an act of justice. An act of justice. So with all that in mind, I just want to ask you this simple question. Jesus says, when you fast, I want to ask you this question, so when will you fast? When will you fast? Uh, If you've never tried it, this week would be a great week to try it because you just heard a sermon on it, right? It's always good to put those things in action right away, but I would say maybe there's two two different times. Maybe you decide, here are certain kinds of situations that I need to fast it's a situation of discernment, a situation of grief, mourning loss, maybe repentance, maybe even intercessory prayer or petitions. And you just kind of decide, when a situation that's this serious, when I encounter that, I'm going to fast. I'm just going to either skip a meal, you know, start small, don't don't bite off more than you can chew. Uh, but you're going to these are the kind of situations that you're going to fast. And then the other the other kind of time I would encourage you is the second time is just decide like a time of year where you'll schedule it and for, you know, a good time of year is like Lent to fast once a week during Lent. Uh, Lent is literally just a season of fasting leading up to Easter, the 40 days before Easter. And you could just decide, hey, this year, this is when I'm going to fast. Because the reality is, if you never schedule it, if you never decide when you're gonna do it, it's never going to, it's never gonna happen. And you're missing out. I know it's weird to hear someone say, man, if you don't fast, you're missing out. And I'm not talking like health reasons or fitness or any of that sort of stuff but you're missing out. And if for, if for health reasons you can't actually you know, skip a meal, blood sugar or, or any of that other stuff, then I would say to give up something else, you know, to try abstaining from social media or those other kind of things. But Jesus, he teaches us, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be filled. And we like to kind of like spiritualize that. Like I'm, I'm spiritually hungry and thirsty for righteousness. But I would, I would just ask you, have you ever hungered and thirsted for food for the sake of hungering and thirsting for righteousness? Because there's a connection between your body, your spirit, your soul is the whole package, it's all of you. So would we be a church that unlocks the blessings of hungering and thirsting for God? And as we do that, we depend more on him. Let's stand for this last song of worship. Thanks for tuning in to the Hill City Church Podcast. You can find out more about our church at hillcityboise.org. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Hill City Boise. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you follow Jesus with everything.